Hi, man. Thanks. All right. Good morning. All right. We are working our way through the book of Hebrews. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, as, uh, as our practice every Sunday, uh, we work our way through, through a book of the Bible, and we are here uh, getting towards the end of the book of Hebrews. And uh, this, this chapter serves as a great setup for us for Hebrews 11, uh, which we'll take a lot slower approach to and kind of go, go through those as well. So um, I will pray for us, and then we will just dig in and kind of tackle what we just read. So Father, thank you for an opportunity to study your word. Thank you for an opportunity to reflect on the living words of God. Um, God, these aren't just words that were written down some 2,000 years ago. God, they are living words. Uh, they're alive today. Your spirit speaking uh, through this book. Uh, God, we pray that you would help us to, our hearts to be pliable, teachable, uh, to listen and to hear, uh, God, what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, imagine the, uh, the headlines, Christianity is atheism, right? Christianity is atheism. That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Sounds, sounds kind of strange to our ears. But to, to the people at the time, living in the, as they were back in ancient Rome, that's exactly what they considered Christianity to be. It was atheism. And the answer, though, you ask the question, why? Why in the world would they call it that? The answer to that question gets to the very heart of the entire book of Hebrews, right? It's to the very heart of it. Because everyone had their systems, no matter what religion they had. They all had their systems. Everyone had their prophets. They had their priests. They had their kings. They had their temples. And they had their sacrifices. They were just different temples and different sacrifices. But they all had that. But Christianity didn't have any of these, right? They didn't have any of these, at least not physically. This made Christianity quite countercultural, which is why it was banned from ancient Rome. It was not allowed to be an official religion there because, because it wasn't a religion, right? So imagine an early conversation that would take place between a Christian and someone in ancient Rome. They asked the Christians, hey, um, so uh, where, where are the temples for your gods? The answer, we don't, we don't have any. Our, our heart is a temple of God. Where, where are your priests for your gods? Well, we don't have any. We don't have any priests. Jesus is our priest. Well, what about your sacrifices to appease your deities? And, Jesus, and we say, Jesus is our sacrifice, and he is our deity. And they say, what kind of religion is this? And we say, it's not a religion. It's a relationship with God who made us, right? I mean, that is a radical, countercultural understanding of God and our relationship to him. And so, um, and so that's what the writer of Hebrews has been trying to teach us over this last month. That's what the whole section has been about, all the way back in chapter, really starting all the way back to chapter 4 and 5 and moving our way all up to today. He's been teaching us that the priesthood, the law, the, the temple, the sacrifices, all of that was all about Jesus. They weren't an end, right? They were there to point, they were a picture of what was to come, of the Messiah that was to come. And that was a threat, again, to every religion, especially to Judaism at the time. It was like, it was, it was like they were holding a postcard of the Grand Canyon while standing on the precipice of it. And they were admiring it, and they were looking at it, and they were talking about it, and they were flipping it over, and they were writing notes on it. And there was vendors set up there, like, selling their postcards. And, like, everybody was obsessed with the postcards. But no one lifted their eyes up to look out to the reality that was right there. It was right in front of them. And that's exactly when Jesus came. That's exactly what he did. He, he, he slapped the postcards out of our hands, and he's like, I'm here. I'm, I'm the reason for all of this stuff. I'm the reason uh, that all of this has ever existed. And yet... We as humanity didn't like that. We reached back down, we got our postcards back up, we stabbed Jesus with a sword and said, don't mess with our religion. Don't mess with our works. Don't mess with what we're trying to accomplish here. And we've all done that. 
So the writer is going to tell us today to, to, to put down religion and look up and see Jesus. Put down the law and look up and see grace. Put down our works and look up and see the cross. In essence, get out of the tent. We talked about this last week. Get out of the tent, the tent where they, they sacrificed, the tent where they tried to work so hard to get access to God. Get out of the tent, right, and into a relationship with God. And so that's the question today. Are you, are you out or inside the tent? Are you still operating as a religious person, going through your motions, doing your stuff, trying to appease God, trying to hope you do enough to make him okay with you, that he'll bless you and love you and all of that? Or are you outside? Are you living in grace? Are you living in a relationship with God? Do you have that relationship? Have you experienced grace? You may say, how do, we, how do we know that? And the writer wants us to know if we really do get grace, if we really have stepped out of the tent. And he'll show us this morning, we're going to see four things, the beauty of grace, the response to grace, a warning from grace, and the evidences of grace. All right, number one, the beauty of grace. We're going to start down at verse 19. Um, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, if you'll notice something, I, I start in verse 19. We didn't read, starting in verse 1, it's a long chapter. But you have to understand, chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, is a summary of everything we have been talking about all along. Okay? It's a summary part of all that Hebrews 5 through 9 has taught us. And what the writer has said is that unlike the Old Testament saints, we have confidence to enter into the presence of God. And the reason we have confidence is because something real has happened, right? Jesus, God, has stepped into our world. He stepped onto the scene, and he has fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the temple. He's fulfilled the sacrifices and the priesthood. He's come to set us free from religion, right, and into a relationship with God. And that's what he's been going after. And we won't be free till we understand, till we see the beauty of grace. We won't be set free. I mean, it's the grace that, that the writer has talked about. This is grace that is greater than all of our sin. It is grace that is greater than all of our guilt. It is grace that is greater than all of our failed moral performances. It is grace that is greater than our damnable good works that we try to perform. It is grace that is greater than anything we ever dreamed possible because God intervened. He stepped into our storyline, our humanity, right? He invaded our world. And if you look back in verses 5 through uh, 7 or 5 through 10, really, that little section there uh, in Hebrews 10, you'll see a quote there. Mine's indented on my, in my Bible here. Maybe it's indented in yours. as showing that it's a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 40. It's from Psalm 40. And it's really telling us, fascinating enough, a conversation, imagine this, between the Father and the Son before Jesus came to earth. Okay? Like, you imagine what that conversation was like? Like, what, there was a conversation. You can read John 17. You'll find a conversation between Father and Son. Right? You see it's all over the Gospels, Jesus and the, and the, and the Father talking. And there was a conversation that took place before of, of this plan of redemption. And this is what 5 through 10 is really talking about. And it's as if Jesus is standing on the, the precipice of, uh, you know, of, of, of the threshold of heaven, and he says basically this, Father, they have been trying to build towers to us. <laughs> They've been trying to work their way up, and they have failed. They've been trying to offer us the blood of animals as if we needed that kind of thing. They, they've been trying to give us, uh, they've been perverting the law. They have, they have all been, all been uh, that we've given to them, thinking somehow that if they just fulfill it and they live up to it, that they'll, that they'll enter into a relationship with us. They just don't get it, Father. They don't get it. They're like a hamster in a wheel, just turning, working, working. They're getting nowhere. 
They have sinned greatly by breaking the covenant and yet not being deterred. They just keep trying. But God, but Father, you've prepared a body for me. That's what he's getting there in verse 7. You prepared a body for me that I might do for them what they can't do for themselves. That I might come down and live a life that they could never dream of living and then die a death they should have died to save them, to free them, to rescue them. I'm going to give them beauty for their, for their ashes, right? I'm going to exchange that. I'm going to magnify our glory so they can all see it. Let's do this. That's really what that conversation is there. And that's the mission that Jesus came on. And so Jesus steps into our world. And to get this, not just be our sacrifice, but be our willing sacrifice. Not just our high priest, but our sacrificial high priest. Did you realize that all the religions had their high priests and they had their sacrifices? Jesus was our sacrificial high priest, right? He brought those two elements together. He basically went behind the curtain that everybody wanted to get into. They wanted to take a peek. They wanted to have access to God. And he ripped it open. He says, come on in. I've completed the work. I'm sitting down. No more works. No more sacrifices are needed to come here. You just come to me. As a matter of fact, I, I'm not taking sacrifices anymore. That's what 1018 is talking about there when he says there's no more need for sacrifice, no more offerings for sin. I've done it. i have completed it. I'm sitting down. It's finished. And so the writer says we have confidence now to enter the presence of God, to begin a relationship with Jesus. Now, why does he add that the one behind the curtain, you'll see this here uh, in 19 through 21 here, that says the, we have a great high priest, verse 21, over the house of God. Why does he add that the person behind the curtain is this great high priest? And the reason is because it's one thing to get access to come behind the curtain and stand before God. That's one thing. It's another thing to know exactly how is God going to treat me? How is he going to see me? What's his eyes going to look like, right? And so it's two different things, right? I've got access. That's wonderful. I can access God, but what's that going to be like to get in his presence, right? And so my confidence all depends upon who's behind the curtain. And here's the beauty of grace. When you really get grace, we not only get an open door into the presence of God, but we come to the presence of the king of the universe and know because of grace that he's not going to clobber us over the head when we enter the door, Right? He doesn't have a trap door set for us. It's not a pail of water there, you know, that'll fall over when you walk inside. It's not a spring-loaded boxing glove that's going to punch you when you walk in. I mean, you, you're able to walk into the presence of God freely. That's what Hebrews has been trying to tell us. It's a merciful and faithful high priest behind that door. One who sympathizes with us. One who offers grace. Who, who doesn't even remember our sins any longer, right? Some of us still don't get this, though. You see, you see the open door, but, but you don't go in too frequently. And the reason you don't go in is because you feel that you just aren't quite ready yet. Or you need to shore some things up. I need to get some things ready and right before I can really talk to God and really get access to God and really kind of go to God. As if God is some delinquent credit card bill, right? We need to pay up. Or as if he's the wizard behind the curtain in Oz, right? We got to like, oh, Lord, I don't know if I want to get back there or not. The writer's saying that the beauty of grace is that we not only have access, despite our sin, to the king of the universe, our creator, but that, get this, he welcomes us, desires to have access and conversation with us, Desire, is always accessible. That's who is behind the veil. That's who's behind the curtain. It's like the, you ever saw the film Lincoln that came out some years ago, where he was the president and his son, if you remember the, the film, if you saw that, always had access. No matter what meetings he was in, no matter how serious things were, his son always had the freedom to walk in to the room and always have access to his father. He was open. He was available. 
And so that's God. He's not too busy, guys. You realize that? He said, I remember when the, when the um, new believer uh, that came to our church, uh, came to know Christ, our church in Hollywood out in California, and I remember he, he was, we had this conversation because this is really how he thought. He's like, man, God is just too busy. I mean, I, I get, my things are petty. I mean, I really don't have really significant, I mean, I think about the world, the significant things out there. I mean, I, I don't want a busy God with the petty things that I have, right? He's, he's got enough stuff to do. And that, that was Lear's perspective on God. Some of us think that way. And God's like, no, I want your petty things. I, I want the things that you feel like are not significant. I, I want all of it, right? That's what, that's what he wants. He has access. It's not, a, it's not the, the BMV in the presence of God, right? It's not the Ikea return ticket, you know, that you get. And you have to sit down and wait for two hours to get that return back in. I mean, God is like accessible right now. Are you taking advantage of that? Do you understand grace to know that you are able to walk into the presence of God immediately? Number two, responses to grace. Grace always demands a response. Um, you know that you don't understand grace if your response to grace is whatever. Yeah, I'm totally free, man. I can do whatever I want. Cool. Grace of God. This is awesome, right? If your response is, ah, it doesn't mean anything to me, then you don't understand it. The writer's going to show us that it, what it looks like now to live under the, the new covenant we talked about last week, what it looks like to, to move out of the tent and live in a relationship with God. And it looks like two things, communion with God and connection with one another. That's what it looks like. It's really simple. This is the Christian life, communion with God and connection with one another. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith that our hearts sprinkle clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in light of the door being opened, the curtain being peeled back, let's walk in and commune with God. God wants us to be near him and to have a relationship with him. And so the writer tells us to draw near. And the writer loves this language. He loves this phrase. Maybe we talked about it, he loves the phrase living God. He uses that a lot. And the phrase draw near is big, big time for him. Hebrews 4.16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 7, 19, a better hope is introduced through which we, need, we draw near to God. Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That is, so much, we so take advantage of that, we don't understand how big that was. I told you before, the high priest, he's the only guy that could go into the, to the presence of God once a year, and he went in with the, his, his actual garment had bells around it, Okay, around his waist, and he had, an, had a rope tied around his ankle. And so that when he walked in, you heard the bells jingling, da-da-da-da. And if they, if they stopped jingling, <laughs> he dropped to the floor, then you grabbed the rope and you pulled him back out again because that meant he died. You're not going in there to get his body because you'll probably die. I mean, that's how, to ha- and this idea of, you know, just draw near to God is so foreign to Scripture. That is a, a radical thing because of grace. It's really the heart of the gospel. God has done wonderful and costly things in order for us to draw near to him, right? He has sent his son to suffer and die so that through him we might draw near to him. But we're not to draw near here, it says, with fear. We don't need to draw near with fear, right? We are are to come with a true heart, it says, in full assurance. Again, that is completely shocking. Adam and Eve, they sinned, they got booted out of the garden. What happened? There was angels with like flaming swords put in front. Don't come back here, right? Don't come near to this place, right? Um, you think about, again, the Holy of Holies, no one comes close. Read, read Exodus, like, we don't even, don't even come close to the mountain that God is on. If you do, if a goat touches it, boom, dead, right? He's dead. Don't even come close to it. And here we're invited to come near, draw near. The writer's saying that we should come with a true heart. What does that mean? What is a true heart? A true heart is this. It's just honesty. It's being real. It's being genuine. 
right? That's what it means. We're to come to the God of the universe as broken people, yet confident. In other words, we, we come to God not getting our act together and cleaning up. God doesn't hear your prayers because you say a certain word, okay, or you say it in a certain way. God wants sincerity, brokenness, and honesty. Think about that. God wants sincerity, brokenness, and honesty. And you know what that means, guys? That means that every single one of us can give, give him that, can't we? I mean, that's, that's pretty radical. We don't, it's not an accomplishment of things we have to do in order for us to have access to God. We just need to be broken. We just need to be honest. We just need to be transparent. That's what God wants. And we can all offer that. Listen to uh, Psalm 51 back in the Old Testament. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17 says, For you, speaking of, to God, you will not delight in sacrifices or I'd give it. Right? If you want all these things, I'd do it for you. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's why in chapter 10, verse 18, where it says there's no longer any offering for sin. That's why it says that. God's not taking any offerings anymore. He's not taking any offerings. He's given an offering of himself. He just wants your brokenness. This, This means you don't have to try to prove your worthiness to God. You also need to try to hide stuff. Because he already knows all the stuff. Right? The gospel says that God knows you all the way to the bottom of your soul better than you know yourself. As I told you before, it's not a cute, tubly, cute uh, teddy bear in the bottom of your heart there, right? I mean, it's broken, and it's bad, and it's dark. And yet God knows all of it, and yet he still chose to die for you anyway. He still chose to die for me anyway, though he knows the, 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 the depravity of our hearts and souls. And so he still, still did that. So we need to come to God holding fast. You see this in verse 23? holding fast our confessions. You say, what is, what is that? What is our confession we need to hold to? I love how John Newton put it. I think this is a great, a great statement that kind of summarizes what our confession is. Here it is. I am old, he says. My memory is failing, but two things I remember. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That's, that's the creed. That's the confession, okay? I have to own I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That's it. That, that's, the, that's what I have to own, so the practical part here, guys, is just open up to God. You might not be willing at this moment in your life, where you are right now, where you are today, to open up to others around you, to really be transparent and honest. But can you at least be that way with God today? Can you at least step out of your comfort zone? He already knows it. That you can be honest and open and transparent and open up your soul. Lay it bare before God. You don't need to have pretty language. You don't have to couch it in a certain way. I mean, read the Psalms. They're tremendously transparent of the psalmists, right? They'll tell God, like, God, I don't, I'm, I'm struggling here. I don't like how things are. God wants, God deeply desires whatever's in the depths of your soul. Whatever's down there, he wants to hear about that. And that's what, that's what the book of Hebrews and what the gospel has showed us, that we now have that opportunity to, to be that before God, to be open and honest and vulnerable in that way. The second thing we get an opportunity to do is make connection with one another. So we commune with God as a part of grace, and we also connect with one another. Verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to loving good works and neglecting, not neglecting, sorry, to meet together, as is the habit of some, encouraging one another. And so grace causes us to seek connection with other believers. Grace literally teaches us that we need each other. Go read Titus 3. We need each other because we're broken. That's what grace teaches us. And so in light of grace, in light of access to God, let's consider each other, it says, and stir one another up. To consider means to literally care about each other, think about one another. And to stir up now means to provoke. 
to get so involved in their life that things get uncovered and you kind of get a little bit messy at times, okay? Grace invites all of that. As the writer here is saying, grace encourages us to care for each other, which lays the groundwork for us to kind of get in each other's kitchen. We call it right. Just step in each other's kitchen, get each other's grill here, and be like, "Okay, these things aren't right. Things are messed up." But notice the context we're considering and confronting here. It's all about the local church. This isn't talking about a building. Okay, we talked about this a lot. The church is not a building. You're not part of the church because you sit here today. The church is a body of believers who are committed to one another um, in the gospel. It's a covenant community. Listen, we might not even like each other sometimes. I didn't get an amen out of that. I thought I'd get an amen out of that one. No. <laughs> No, someone, no, no one has enough, enough, enough uh, courage to say that. Um, we, we may not even like each other at times. We may get on each other's nerves sometimes, but that, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? That's where sanctification starts taking place. That's where this considering and confronting one another as broken sinners, right? That, that's where all this starts to take place, and you start understanding, I've got a real relationship with God because I'm willing to stick together with this. Being part of the church, part of the covenant community, forces you to meet together. It forces you to consider one another and even to confront one another in love. My friends, until you are committed to a body of believers, you won't ever experience uh, these things together. You, you won't grow like you should. And in essence, you kind of, you, you kind of immune yourself to, to the voice of God, really, through the life of your fellow brothers and sisters. They speak life into you. They speak truth into your life. And you're not around them enough to even hear it uh, and what they're trying to say. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the biography I've been reading, I've told you guys about, he, he says this. This is really good. He's speaking about just how God speaks to one another. He said, look, God, God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, so he's convicted, God teaches him something, he speaks it to others, right? You've had this happen, God shows you something, convicts you of something, like, man, this is fantastic, and you share that with someone else. That's, that's God's word spreading from you to other people, right, going around. He says here, he goes on to say, he needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say this. He says, the Christ in his own heart is weaker. I mean, his conviction, his understanding, uh, than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. He's just saying, I need someone stronger than I am at times. I'm weak at times. I need someone stronger. I need them to speak into my life. And when I'm stronger and they're weaker, I need to speak into their life. We need each other. You need the local church. It's not an option for a follower of Christ. Being part of a church doesn't make you a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you're not part of the local church, you may not be a Christian, okay? That's how that works. It is all part of proving your faith, that you stick together in relationship with one another. Listen, I can promise you, you will not grow in grace. You will not grow in loving Jesus till you embrace a community of believers called the local church. And when you own it and you walk together with them, you won't have anyone say the hard things to you. All you'll have is a bunch of people who just who just, you know, are yes men, basically. just affirm everything about you, right? And then someone happens to say something that maybe, maybe just sets you off a little bit. What do we do? In our culture, we just go like, fine, I'm out of here. I'm going to leave and go somewhere else. And we just hop around until we find people that would just affirm everything and not, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to get too close. I don't want anybody to know too much about me, right? That's what we do. C.S. Lewis talked about how God whispers in our joys. And what he meant by that, he, you know, it's like the very small voice of God and when everything's going well, but he shouts in our pains, he talks about, right? 
You, ever, I mean, you can go back in your life and look at the hard times. Times are really tough where you felt almost like the voice of God was louder. There, there was, there was wor- God's, God's words were like alive and coming at you when that time was really tough. And that's important, right? That's how we hear the voice of God through our life. We hear it through each other. We hear it through the word of God. But it's not just the voice of God that gets quieter when we, when we separate ourselves from one another. It's the heart. Our heart starts to grow cold. We need each other. Right? Think of that, if you have an old uh, grill charcoal in there, right? It's all burning hot when it's inside. You take that one piece of charcoal and you take it and you put it out on the ground, out in the snow somewhere. What happens to it? It, it, it gets cold. It turns dark gray, right? You put it back inside with all the rather, other red hot coals. What does it do? It lights back up. It gets hotter again. Th- that's what we need to be in the body of Christ. We need to be in each other's life. When we're weak, we need to be around the other coals, okay? <laughs> we need to be, so we can have our hearts set on fire for loving the Lord. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. So you want to experience the grace of God, my friends? Get plugged into the local church. That's life outside the tent, right? Number three, and this is a tough part of this passage, warning from grace. Now, this may be a shock to some of you. We talk about grace, you're like, there's Warnings attached to grace, that seems like an oxymoron. It's not. It's a warning. And here's the warning, and it's pretty strong, okay? The warning basically is this. Jesus says, look, you reject me, and there's hell to pay. (laughs) That's the warning, right? Uh, God takes his gospel very, very seriously. He takes his offer of grace to you very, very seriously. It's not something to play around with. Look down at verse 26. It talks about here, uh, sitting deliberately after receiving knowledge of truth, they're no longer made to sacrifice for sins. This is not a believer. This is someone who has heard the gospel. They're hearing it with their ears. They may understand certain facts, but they have not come to the point of embracing Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he goes on to talk about here that, that all this, this fire of consume the adversaries, right? The writer is, and he goes on to talk about the old covenant here, talking about the, the law of Moses. You're like, what's he talking about? He's basically saying, he's saying, look, you know, under the old covenant, if you go back and read it, there was capital punishment, for certain crimes, right? Um, you killed somebody, guess what? You're dead. That's how it works. You commit adultery, you're dead. I mean, it was, it was a severe law, is what he's saying. The Old Testament law, go read it. There was, there was capital punishment for certain sins. And so what he says here, he says, if God took the law, Mosaic law, that seriously, how much more seriously do you think he's going to take the rejection of his offer of grace that cost the son, his son his life? You see what he's saying? That's a comparison that he's making there. So the issue here is not, you know, some people just didn't live good enough lives or some people just didn't go to church enough. No, the issue is that they rejected grace. They rejected Jesus. They slapped away the hand of God who was offering them grace. And they outrage, it says here, the spirit of grace. And thus there's hell to pay. There was never a heart change. They still live for themselves. Maybe they sprinkled a little church in there, right? Sprinkled a little religion there. Did a couple of good works in there. But they never transformed on the inside. Imagine, imagine an irreligious person living to please men, right? Who works hard so his boss won't fire him. Hopefully he gets a raise out of the deal, right? Then he comes home, he works hard for his spouse, hoping that, that, you know, that she won't leave him. Works hard for his kids and hope that they won't, you know, won't run away and won't shame him in some way. Then that guy decides to try religion, right? And now he takes that same works-based narrative of life and he applies it to the church and God, and so when he starts going, he, he, you know, he starts going to church, and he starts praying, he starts serving the poor, all in hopes 
of all that work, it will pay off, right? It'll, it'll please God in some format. As I said before, it's like God is the pinata and his good works are the stick. And he's going to beat God with the stick until God yields the good stuff, right? The candy, until life starts getting good here. I'm going to keep working really hard until I get, get a good life. Can you imagine how miserable that would be? Maybe that's some of you today. That's how you view God. That's how you see Christianity and how you see grace. It's no wonder people walk away from Christianity, right? Because they're not walking away from Christianity. They're walking away from religion, right? They, they, they don't understand that. They've, they basically, when that happens, they've done what Johnny Cash called their own personal Jesus, right? It's just their own personal Jesus. They've created this own kind of figure that isn't even part of Scripture, they didn't walk away from the real Jesus. They walked away from a cardboard cutout of Jesus, right? A, the felt board Jesus they walked away from. They didn't walk away from the real one. As a result, they're, they're still moving around the tent, right? Walking around the campus, waiting in line to, to offer their modern sacrifices, playing church games. And my friends, God hates church games. He hates it. Nothing infuriates God more than church games. You know, why does God take that so seriously? Because it's a false gospel, it's a facade of Christianity. It's how hey, you do these things and God will save you. Do these things and God will, God will accept you. Do these things and God will love you. And, and God hates that because that's a false gospel. That's why he takes it so seriously. That's why Jesus would say in, in the gospels, for, for example, he'd say things like, you know what, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for you, right? These cities. You're like, wow, that's a pretty severe statement. Why? Because Jesus was right in front of them and they rejected him. Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't re- they rejected God, but they owned their stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, at least they didn't play church here. They just went all in. These people in this passage that, that uh, the writer's talking about have literally trampled Jesus under their feet. They've grinded him into the dirt. They treated his blood as common and ineffective. Why? Because they're good without him, even though they sit in church. Plus, I mean, to surrender to grace would mean they would have no leverage, right? You wouldn't be able to tell God what to do anymore, our lives wouldn't, wouldn't revolve around us anymore. It'd have to revolve around God and other people. I've got to surrender myself now. And that would mean Jesus also gets all the glory. And that's too much for most people. They want themselves, and they want a little, maybe a little Jesus or church sprinkled in there to help them feel a little better. But basically, I still want my world. I want it to be my world and what it's all about. That's why C.S. Lewis talked about hell. He said this, hell emerges as the greatest monument to human freedom. It's the greatest monument to human freedom. You want yourself? You know, some people say, like, oh, hell is so cruel, and God's so evil, and like, oh, why would hell exist? And that's such a foreign concept. But it was a very real concept. And it's just basically God saying, hey, you want to live a non-God existence forever? You don't want me? Fine, here, you can have you forever. That's what hell is. Just you, all by yourself. Isolation, darkness, you want you, take it. All common grace removed. That's what hell is. It is separation from God. And so God's not playing around here. Spurn, spurn the Son of God. And again, I, I know I'm, I'm quoting Johnny Cash again today, but God's going to cut you down, right? That's kind of how it works. That's what it says. Look at verse 30. We know vengeance is mine. I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That is part of the Bible. That is who Jesus is. I don't, <laughs> if we get offended by this stuff, right? We don't like that in our culture to talk about this kind of thing, but... Uh, I'll just, I'm going to quote John Piper because the way he says it is so good. He says, because only John Piper can say it this way, we are soft people. While most of the world watches death every day without morphine or any medical help and deals with deep gashes and amputations with no antiseptics or stitches, we gag at the sight of a dead dog. We grumble when 911 takes five minutes to respond instead of three. We are soft. We are presumptuous. 
And what's most appalling, though very few regard it as most appalling, is that when it comes to God, all we want to hear is the sweet side, the tender side, the warm side, right? For those of you who think Jesus is like Fabio minus the muscle, I may be like dating myself on that one. Young people are like, who's Fabio? Fabio minus the muscle, you know, just the blonde flowing hair, the, you know, the blue eyes, you know, and he's just, he's, he's carrying around cuddly lambs with them all the time. Like that's the only version you have of Jesus. You need to go back and read the Bible, okay? You go back and read it. The Bible describes him as a lion and a lamb, right? It, he's taking little children in his arms and he's saying, look, if you cause one of these to stumble, you might as well go take a rope, tie it around your neck and put a rock and go jump in the ocean. You're like, whoa, he's got kids in his hand when he, tell, when he tells people that, right? And he, he weeps over Jerusalem, and yet he pronounces judgment of Jerusalem when they reject him. He's feeding the poor one minute, and he's like Indiana Jones in the temple. He's leading people out with the whip and telling them to get out of there. That's why in the line which in the wardrobe, Lucy said, he's, he's not safe, but he's good. Right? He's not safe, but he's good. So wherever you find yourself on your spectrum of your view of Jesus today, just know that there, there are many sides to him. He doesn't fit in a little cultural box that we try to put him into. Again, don't make up your own Jesus here. Don't create your own personal Jesus. Look for the real Jesus of the Bible. You must take him as he is. Let him define himself and realize that if he is real, which he is, he's surely going to differ than, that, than our culture in certain elements and affirm other elements. He's going to confront us and he's going to encourage us. Without a God who offends you, my friends, if he doesn't, can't offend you, then you don't have a real relationship. If he can't say things too hard for you to swallow, things that make you mad, then he can never say things that are too good to be true. Things will make you weep for joy. You can't have it both ways. Lastly, evidences of grace. The writer goes on to show at the end of this chapter how he knows that these guys he's writing to, he knows, I know you guys got it. I've seen the evidences of grace in your life. You have not rejected Jesus. You have embraced him. And he encourages them with this evidence he sees. Two things he sees. One is perseverance he sees. Verse 32, recall former days. When after you were enlightened, after you came to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who so treated, you had compassion on those in prison, joyfully accepted the plunder of your property. That's pretty radical. The writer says that they, they clung to Jesus through some very, very tough times. Remember, we talked about that way back at the beginning of Hebrews. Because they were part of ancient Rome, they had no rights The property could be taken from them. They could get fired from their jobs, right? They could be killed because they had no rights because Christianity was banned as part of that that culture. So they've gone through storms, and they've come out the other side, he says. Yeah, they may be, their their ship may have sunk. They may be clinging to driftwood, but man, they're they're clinging, right? That's what he's saying. They're holding on. He says they endured, which means to stand one's ground in in a field of battle. They stood there. And it says, as a result, they were made up, they were exposed. You see that, letter, that, that phrase, word exposed? It's a word for public theater. It's, a, it's where we get our English word theater from. The Greek word is very similar to the English word theater. Publicly exposed. They were, they were ridiculed. They were put on the stage, as it were, and they were laughed at. They were, modic, uh, they, were, they were ridiculed and taunted as a theater of the absurd. And they got both insults, it says, and persecutions. They got verbal and physical abuse. Same language used for the sufferings of Jesus. In verse 33, it says they partnered with, the idea is fellowship. They, they partnered in suffering with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They didn't leave them. They didn't abandon them when it got hard. They jumped in with them and suffered with them. And then verse 34 says they visited those in prison. They sympathized with them. That's the same word again used of Jesus back in chapter 4, verse 15. And this is important because prisons back then weren't the same as today. If you didn't supply them with food and clothing, 
they died, okay? They were just thrown in the cell, and that's it. And if people didn't love them enough to come actually bring them things, they would die there. And that's what Christians, by the way, began a huge ministry there and began to reach a lot of people, and the gospel started going forward because of this, by the way. They would go and care for everybody that was in the prisons when no one else would. And then it says they accepted the, the seizure of their property. Not stoically, by the way, joyfully. Here, take it with a smile. You know, they were, I mean, they were almost crazy here. And that was, again, a big deal because their possessions were things that were passed down from generation to generation. It was from their family. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They lost their property. And through all of this, they clung to Jesus. Why? Why did they do that? It doesn't make sense. Because he was more valuable to them than anything else they could possess. His gospel, his grace, his truth prevailed over the lies of the world. Grace had gotten a hold of them right? They became a light to the watching world. Why? That you want to talk about reaching people for Christ? You want to talk about seeing, having people see the gospel in you? These people literally embodied the life of Jesus to the world. How do we know that? Well, if you go back and read the Bible, some of this language sounds pretty familiar, right? Who do you know that endured suffering, was publicly exposed and laughed at, who had all of his property stolen, even the clothes off of his back? It's Jesus. I mean, everything you read here is exactly what they literally embodied the person and what the Christian is, little Christ. They took on his life and they lived it out. And that caused the world to be set on fire for Christ. It wasn't because they had a, a big soapbox in the middle of Rome and they were preaching out to everybody. They lived radical lives of grace and mercy and forgiveness and embraced suffering for Christ's sake that caused people to go, who are you? That was how the gospel moved forward. And, and secondly, they had perspective. It wasn't just they persevered. They had perspective. They had eternal perspective that grace gave them. Look at verse 34. They knew they had a better possession and an abiding one, right? The basis for them being able to give up their possessions in joy is because of the fact they had a better and lasting ones. Grace pointed them to something more valuable, what is to come. They were, they were surely going to be rewarded. They were going to have a relationship with God. They were going to be with him for eternity. There was rewards coming. God was going to do that. He said, I don't understand like the whole reward thing. What's he talking about? I, I, I don't know all the specifics, but let me read um, Randy Alcorn. This, this was good. He says, we flatter ourselves and insult God when we say, I don't care about reward. God will reward the child who gave to the missions offering the money she'd save for a softball net. He'll reward the teenager who kept himself pure despite all the temptations. He'll reward the man who tenderly cared for his wife with Alzheimer's. The mother who raised the child with cerebral palsy. The child who rejoiced despite his handicap. He'll reward the unskilled person who was faithful and the skilled person who was meek and servant-hearted. He'll reward the parents who modeled Christ to their children, the children who followed them maybe despite their parents' bad example. He'll reward those who suffered while trusting him and those who helped the ones who were suffering. He'll reward the couple who downsized, sell in their large house, live in a small one, and gave all the money away to missions. He doesn't have to reward anyone for anything. He does it because he wants to. And make no mistake, regardless of what you and I think about it, that's exactly what he's going to do. That's exactly what he's going to do. And we talked about this already in the book of Hebrews. We saw how we, we talked about in chapter 8, he remember our sins no more. But yet in chapter 6, he talks about there that he's going to remember. Uh, back, back in chapter 6, uh, going down to verse, verse 9, verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. He's remembering those things. He doesn't have to. He is. And again, we see the very life of Jesus being embodied here by the, even the motives of Jesus being embodied by this culture. 
by these people to the culture. Read John 17. You heard Jesus talk about his anticipation of being back with the Father in heaven. Read Luke 23 when he says to the, Jesus, to the thief on the cross, and he says, today you'll be with me, what? In paradise, right? It was motivation looking forward. Read Hebrews 12 and see how Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Right? It was anticipation of what was to come. The future glory allowed him to go, I can let this stuff go. I, I can let my life go. I, I can serve people without any, any expectations, get anything back in return, because I know I've got, a, I got, I got it better. I got it better coming. You know you get grace. You know you're living outside the tent. You know you, you, know you live a life before the watching world that has eternal value to it when this is, this is the case. The question is, what are you living for that will last for eternity? What investments are you making both of your time and, and money that will last for eternity? What relationships are you building now for the sake of the gospel that will have lasting eternal impacts? What mark are you leaving that's going to last for eternity? These guys em- embodied that. And then we talk about missions and we talk about reaching the world for Christ. That eternal perspective has to be there. That's the, that's the motivation behind all the, the grace that we receive and the grace that is to come. So as we go to communion, we want to think about that. Okay, every Sunday we take this time to be quiet and to, and to kind of contemplate and think and reflect on the scriptures. As we have bread and we have juice at the tables, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to go to those tables. We give our offerings as well. If you're not a Christian, that's not for you. Okay. If you don't know Christ, we'd love to introduce you to him, talk more about that. But listen, for you who do know Christ, it's an opportunity for you to reflect, right? How do you embody the life of Christ in your life? What marks are there in your life that set you apart from just any other person in the world outside of Christ, right? What what people are you serving, okay? Who are you giving to serving that will never reward you back or pay you back, right, for that? Starting by asking the Holy Spirit to kind of guide and reflect, what are, what are the areas where I can live that actually count for eternity? What ways can I embody the life of Christ to the watching world? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this, God. It's, uh, this is life outside the tent. God, this is life outside of religion. It's a life lived, a radical life lived, in response to grace. Um, grace means a lot. It has teeth to it, God. It, it radically changes us. Because grace means that we surrender everything to you. You get all the glory, and you call all the shots. And we receive all the grace, which is wonderful. Um, But God, it's all about you. And you have the authority and the power and the right to tell us to do whatever it is that you want us to do. And so God, I pray today as as your spirit kind of prods in through souls and hearts this morning, that God, you would speak to them in a way that, God, you tell them what you need them to do. Tell them what ways, show them what ways, show us what ways God, that we need to shore up our life in a way that reflects you to our culture, reflects you to our watching world. Help us build those relationships, God, uh, towards the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.